You know how most students have some kind of nightmare at some point about missing a class, missing a final, not turning in a paper. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually threw a final, a written final in the trash. Welcome to the Find Your Calling podcast. I'm Terry Eisman. She's been called the mother of democratic politics, but true or not, she is an accomplished Bruin. Since her stint in the Clinton administration, California Assemblywoman Christy Smith has forged through many challenges, none bigger than her bid for Congress, a do-over race. But does she have the policy chops and strategy to meet this moment? Here now with her fascinating trajectory and an elevator pitch to you, California Assemblywoman Christy Smith. Assemblywoman Christy Smith, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I'm very excited to have you because number one, you are a Bruin, <laughs> which I don't know I that- I am a Bruin, go Bruins. Go Bruins. I don't know that many people uh, know that about you, but uh, you're a Bruin and, and we're very excited to, um, to have you. So uh, before we sort of dive into the smorgasbord of issues that have percolated up in recent weeks, and you know, obviously they've been there for quite a long time, but they have really come to the fore in recent weeks. Um, I think it's very valuable to know and to sort of dig into your history, because I think a lot of people have come to know you um, over the past couple of months, right, on, on the campaign campaign trail mm -hmm, right. for Congress, but maybe not so much before. So just for some quick background, you are an assemblywoman who represents the communities of Santa Clarita, Castaic, Agua Dulce, others, um, and you are now running to snag the 25th Congressional um, seat that was previously held by Congresswoman Katie Hill. Something that differentiates you from most, uh, I guess, law lawmakers is that you are not a native Californian. You were actually born in, this is amazing, a U.S. Army hospital in West, in then West Germany, and then moved to the continental U.S. at six months old. So, I mean, I was just curious, before we get right. into the political stuff, how did the stars align themselves for you to be born in West Germany? How did that happen? Well, it was uh, during the Vietnam era, and my uh -huh. dad um, was attending college in Kentucky and uh -huh. uh, lost his scholarship for a year and ended up being drafted, uh -huh. and so uh, served in the U.S. Army, was stationed in Würzburg, Germany, uh, married my mom shortly before he shipped out overseas, and so mm -hmm. she joined him uh, after he got stationed there. That's where I was mm -hmm. born, and then um, his tour was over do, by the way? shortly after I was born. Uh -huh. My mom, um, later in life, became a nurse, mm -hmm. but at the time that she Got was married, she was doing uh, secretarial work. Is she, is she still a nurse? No, unfortunately, I lost her um, oh, several okay. years ago. Sadly, she I'm was so sorry you know, one that. of the many yeah. people like we, well, thank you, but you know, all over mm -hmm. the country, we know that people lack access to healthcare. She was one sure. of those people. She retired early because of a medical condition and mm -hmm. uh, did not qualify for Medi-Cal yet because she had just a little bit too much resource saved up. Uh, mm -hmm. And then went three years with a lot of really significant conditions untreated until she qualified for Medicaid. And so, you know, for me, part of the reason I'm such a strong advocate for healthcare uh, is because of the loss of my mom. Wow. Yeah. Well, my, my condolences to you and thank you to her work at the time. Uh, nurses are the backbone of this healthcare system. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you to her and to people like her and to the frontline workers that I'm sure you've been, you know, talking to and, and collaborating with in, um, in recent weeks. So I know that you moved to the Santa Clarita Valley. How did 
I mean, how did that happen? Yeah. How'd you go from Indiana to, <laughs> to San Clarita Valley? Yeah, so the, um, my dad worked for um, what, back in the day when we had vinyl records, it was RCA mm -hmm. Records, and my dad worked for RCA Records in Indianapolis, and mm -hmm. um, several of the folks he worked with got moved out to California to work for a different company, and after a few of them mm -hmm. were here, he was offered a job, and uh, so we relocated for him to take that new job in Southern California. Wow, is he a political person because I feel like sometimes, um, uh, well, oftentimes actually, parents will sort of push their kids into one direction or another. Um, was that in any way the case for you? Was he, are you, in, you know, or did you like grow up in a political household? Um, actually, no, although I will say um, now reflecting back on the lessons she taught me, my mom was really mm -hmm. a, a subversive feminist. You know, she kind of came of age right as feminism and Gloria Steinem and the whole ERA movement was um, really present in our country, but she took a really different path. And then sadly, I was never uh, very close with my dad. I grew up in a home where there was mm -hmm. domestic violence and my parents separated when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And so um, consequently was not too close to my dad, but no, he wasn't, he wasn't a political person at all. But my mom, again, she, I think I, I get all of my uh, righteous indignation from my mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's, and, I have, and, I, and well. I have more than, I have more than, yeah, I have more than my yeah. fair share, which is probably what propels me into politics. <laughs> well, and I was just about to ask you, so how did you then, like when you grew, when you were growing up in Santa Clarita Valley, like how, what, what convinced you to first go to UCLA and then major in poli-sci, which by the way, I major in as well. Oh, fantastic. Um, well, listen, yeah. like a lot of people here in the state, and we have this amazing benefit of our California community college system, because of my parents' divorce, mm -hmm. I did not have the financial resources to start out at a four-year university, even though I had been pretty successful in high school. It just wasn't an option for me. So I started at our local community college in Santa Clarita, worked three jobs, mm -hmm. uh, so worked full-time plus while putting myself through school back at a time when you could afford to do that. I mean, the community mm -hmm. college was definitely affordable, but I could also move out and be on my own and support Great. myself and then uh, transferred to UCLA and ended up um, as a political science major just because I, you know, really since about fifth grade, this is the only work I've, I've wanted to do. I mean, from second grade to fifth grade, I, was, I briefly flirted with the idea of being a dentist. And then after fifth grade, you know, that first year where you get your real first big dose of that American so history and the founding yeah. of our country and, and, and our institutions of government, I, I just fell in love and it never left me. So, um, you know, wow. ended up at UCLA and spent a couple of amazing years there uh, finishing at my bachelor's. Wow, that's so funny. I actually wanted to enter into um, uh, orthodont orthodontics uh, <laughs> before before journalism. That, <laughs> right. That's so funny. I, I, did, I, so I, did you have braces yeah. yourself? Because I started I that did. whole journey when I was around seven. Yes. Yeah, see, that was it. I was, I was it fully, was a profession I was exposed to. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was fully convinced when I got my braces on because, you know, braces that at one point in life are considered to be fashionable, especially when you're at school, right? Because you have braces that kind right. of... Yeah, I, so uh, they're kind of in vogue. So I was like, ooh, orthodontics, this might be a good uh, Yeah, this is really cool. Right, exactly. Same path, yeah. that's where I was. Yep. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you arrived at UCLA as a transfer student, by the way, I'm also a transfer student from uh, Pierce College, and I loved it. Oh, great. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it was amazing. I, I, I'm i a big, big fan of, uh, of community college. Were there any sort of memorable moments that still come up, come to mind 
when you're, you know, when you're legislating today or when, when you're thinking about um, your rationale, does, does anything come up or just something fun? Like, do you remember anything? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, you, the first time you walk into a, a lecture at UCLA and you're in one of the bigger rooms, you know, and you're in there with several hundred other people. And then occasionally, because I, um, classical political theory was, were classes I spent a lot of my time in and, and you've got a professor mm -hmm. who decides to go Socratic and start calling on people, you oh, know, yeah. I mean, any, any hints that I might've previously had about not wanting to speak in public was gone for that, because if you want to succeed, you know, and really get the most out of your classwork, you had to sure. speak up and participate. And so mm -hmm. I can remember enjoying that. I can remember, and I, I doubt he's still there, but um, there was an amazing history professor, Professor Shulman, who every time he came uh, to class for a lecture, it was just this storytelling interwoven with the best of American history from like the industrial mm -hmm. revolution forward into mid-century. And he was just such a phenomenal professor. And then I can remember just sweating bullets with, you know, so many professors that you write that first paper and you don't really know what angle they're looking for, how you're going to get graded and, um, you know, all the usual stuff. And then, you know, that memorable moment, you know how most students have some kind of nightmare at some point about missing a class, missing a final, not turning in a paper. Um, mm -hmm. So I actually threw a final, a written final in the trash. It was one of those where you came and you oh handed your blue books in, you yeah, marked yeah. certain pages and then it was handed back to you. So I had two handed back to me, filled out one with a class that was really challenging for me. So I had studied really, really hard, mm -hmm. but was just so like anxious and excited and whatever. It was literally my last final, my last class at UCLA, walked mm -hmm. to the front of, front of the class, inadvertently hand in the blank blue book and go outside and thinking that one I had oh. in my hand was blank, shred it and throw it in the trash. Oh no. So and the what professor, happened? I know, yeah. The, the professor, based on my prior work, called me and she said, okay, look, you've been a good student so far. I am absolutely certain you did not mean to throw, you know, to turn in this, uh, this blank yes. blue book. And so I go back to the trash can. I find it. I show her the evidence like, oh my gosh, no, like fortunately they hadn't collected the trash and it was still there. I'm dumpster diving on campus. Um, it's still in the trash bin. I show it to her. Oh She's like, God. okay, I'm going to rewrite an exam for you. She let me take it. Of course, she couldn't give me, I would have had an A in the class. I ended up with a B plus because she couldn't give me the full letter grade because I had more time to study than everyone else. But the professor was incredibly fair. And um, wow. yeah, I, I lived in <laughs> the nightmare. So that, that was probably the standout memory of graduation week is taking that final and <laughs> second time and dumpster diving. Yeah, I, th I think that takes uh, first first place because uh, <laughs> that I've never yeah. heard of anything like that. I have not heard that is dedication, and you know what? That is the kind of dogged determination I think has uh, landed you, you know, uh, in, in the in the assembly. But before you went to the assembly, um, we need to back up a little bit because after UCLA, I'm not sure how soon after, but I know that you worked in the Clinton administration. This is very fascinating. Mm -hmm. As an education analyst, what, what, what was yeah. that? How'd you get into that? Because well, education so it, isn't, as, isn't and, and, really like a sexy issue, you know, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it has been a passion of mine um, yeah. since high school. I, I really see our public education system as one of the, the main cornerstones of having <clears throat> a, a functional democracy and, and being able to support the institutions that we all believe in. So I've always seen it as a really integral piece to everything that we do in our country. But I would say this to any student, you know, leaving UCLA and looking for opportunities in Washington, D.C., don't just look to those elected offices. Every executive level department has various programs for admitting entry level 
workers. And um, I happened to qualify for one that at the time was called an Outstanding Scholars Program. And so um, I had to present a couple of research papers. They take your GPA into account. I had a couple of extra interviews, but then I qualified for this program, which placed me right into the office of the undersecretary um, doing research and work on our nation's education programs. Um, everything from kindergarten through 12th grade. At the time, it was um, School to Work, which was this initiative around career and job training at the high school level and mm -hmm. making that transition for people. So it was really an amazing experience and a great time, you know, to be there during the Clinton administration. But um, I would strongly encourage anybody, if you really have a, a strong interest in policy in whatever area, look to those departments and see what those opportunities are that exist, because mm -hmm. it is really a phenomenal way to, to get started. Yeah, no, that that's amazing. And I think you may have mentioned this, but how old were you when you started working there? Well, it took me a little longer to get my degree since I was working full-time plus. So uh -huh. by the time I started there, I was uh, 24. Got it. Wow. So that's that's very young yeah. to already start working in an executive level branch, um, branch level department. That's awesome. So then I, I got to ask you this because, you know, after, I guess, after you left, you had different stints of education advocacy. You're still an, a big advocate for education. In fact, you sit on the committee, the education committee in the assembly. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wanted to ask you, so there's been this one statistic um, that I've been looking at um, in previous weeks, and I actually j recently just asked an LAUSD school board candidate about this. And I just kind of find this shocking. So out of LAUSD's class of 2019, this is the most recent day, keeping in mind this is the second largest school district in the United States, largest in California, 41.1% of students were not prepared for college with African Americans and Native Americans performing worse than white and Asian students, which I think that's kind of shocking. 41% it is. You know, are not are not mm -hmm. prepared. So my question for you is, mm -hmm. what do you think has been the most damaging falsehood people in the educational realm have told themselves that in turn has stalled progress in our educational system? What is that sort of self-created manifestation that has hindered the actors who make policy? including legislators. Yeah, I really appreciate that question because fundamentally when you look at a statistic like that, it really brings home that uh, education is also a civil rights issue and mm -hmm. that so much of the systemic racism and systemic social injustice that we see in the other institutions that we all participate in day to day, it is additionally manifest in our public schools. And we need to really come to terms with the fact that it will take a substantial amount of investment, not just in the material goods of educating a student, but in making sure that the resources they have in their life and the things that support them in their life outside of school also lends themselves to students being able to achieve academically, whether that is meals, whether that is um, assistance for a family environment, if there is housing insecurity, if there are um, mental health, health needs that they have. Um, all of this full range of societal injustice that children now bring to school and is laid at the doorstep of the school, I think also has to start to be addressed in that school setting. And we simply have not put the financial resources behind that in a significant enough way for schools mm -hmm. to really do that job. It, it's incumbent on more than just a teacher. You think about a teacher has sure. 30 or more kids in any given class, right? 
our schools need to be much more well developed with social workers and counselors and supportive service personnel to help really address the needs of these kids and get to the root of what's keeping them from learning. Because learning really at the end of the day is an easy problem to solve with skilled teachers. And, and all of our yeah. teachers go in our, the classrooms with their best foot forward trying to, to achieve that work every day. But if you're talking about a young person, perhaps by the time they get to high school and they are responsible for caring for siblings or they are responsible to have a part-time job themselves to um, support the family's well-being, that's a very different dynamic for that student to be learning in. And so we need to fully yeah. resource these schools. We need to um, lean in and, and really have our shoulder into the work of supporting the whole development of a student as they come into our public education system. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a different era. And I think we have looked past this for so many generations. And said, well, why aren't these kids achieving? Achievement is a whole lot about a whole lot more than what happens in the classroom. Do you think fundamentally um, lawmakers, policy, policy um, makers, people, people who implement, um, you know, even legislation, is there a fundamental assumption off of which they are functioning that hinders them from reaching your goal. So say, you know, because I, I have heard many different times, in fact, um, I was just recently the, the candidate who I interviewed, her name is Tanya Ortiz Franklin. I think she's running for the, the seventh district, Richard Vladovic's seat. And she, she said something um, similar, similar to that because, um, you know, clearly there are not enough resources. But so would you, would you say that, that there's a, an underlying assumption that needs to be corrected in order for us to start looking at the system through a different prism, through a more optimal prism? Yes, I do. And I think part of that is bringing uh, teachers to the conversation much more frequently and robustly mm -hmm. when it comes to policymakers making those decisions. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm a legislator who knows the jobs that I don't know. I don't do every full spectrum of jobs that I legislate sure. on. So I rely on yeah. those professionals to tell me what those needs are. Teachers are one of the go-tos that uh, we need to be bringing into that conversation more. But then, you know, as legislators, we all have our own area of specialization. We serve on most of us five committees. And so those are the areas mm -hmm. you tend to know really, really well. And then outside yeah. of that, the challenge is becoming familiar enough to make good decisions when the bills are put in front of you. And, you know, I think we have danced around the margins of understanding we need to do more in California. I think we were mm -hmm. well-intentioned with our Proposition 98 guarantee many years ago that said a certain percentage ends up being about half of our state's budget must be allocated to the needs of our public schools. Yet, unfortunately, that has been more of a ceiling than a floor. It was always intended to be the floor, like the bare minimum that we spend on education, yet it tends yeah. to be now, sadly, where we cap out in terms of our expenses. So a lot more we need to be doing in terms of that investment. And, you know, we need to look systemically, too. You know, if you look at the, the, the correlation between the statistic you gave me and then the number of young people who end up in the prison pipeline yes. and where we're spending $55,000 a year to house someone in, in our criminal justice system who probably simply with more investment in the kindergarten through 12th grade portion of their life would mm -hmm. not have ended up on that path. And we've got to get really serious about, again, looking at that and making sure we've got the supports in place so that it doesn't happen. 
Um, speaking of these systematic challenges, um, recently some activists and even I believe the president of UTLA it was um, either, I can't remember which one, either called for the, the defund, I believe it's the defunding, defunding or in some cases mm -hmm. some have called for the disbanding of police including school police. Um, are you mm -hmm. um, in, in support of that? What's your position on, on this matter? Well, I think each district is going to have to make their own decision, and that's one of the great things about how we manage school districts in the state is that there is that local control so that um, citizens and families who benefit from the local schools can then interact with their school board to make those choices and those decisions. I know it's something that LAUSD is looking at. On the yes. other hand, um, I represent a school district where we had, sadly, one of the most recent high school shootings prior to the COVID pandemic at yeah. Saugus High School. Yes. And so we have students and families here who have uh, a fair sense of well-being, of, of security, of having a resource officer available, even if they're at the perimeter of the campus, um, but having somebody there. So I think each community is going to have to mm -hmm. grapple with what the right fit is for their school. Um, you know, and it's, it's like any other piece of our education system. Sometimes it can work really well and work to students' advantage where they have um, you know, another adult looking out for their well-being, someone, a person of authority that they can develop a relationship with and a first positive experience with law enforcement. In other circumstances, sadly, I've seen it go too far the other way and uh, mm -hmm. where it becomes uh, far too disciplinary and where, you know, the resource officer might be involved in things that would probably be best handled by a counselor on campus or some other kind of trained professional. So I think at a minimum, it's, there's going to be some rethinking about what those mm -hmm. resource officers' roles should be on campus and what additional training they might need to best support students. But again, I think that's going to be a, a decision best made by every local district according to the needs of their mm -hmm. community. You want to keep it local. Sure. I I totally understand. Yeah. Um, I um, I wanted to ask a little bit about your uh, your your race that you um, mm -hmm. just lost um, and the campaign that you are currently still on to win the 25th yeah. congressional seat um, in November. So obviously, you know, many, including myself, have come to know you because of because of that race. Obviously, it was uh, Katie Hill's seat uh, before um, mm -hmm. she resigned. And so on May 12th, uh, you lost to the Republican contender, Mike Garcia, who is a defense executive and pilot. But the unique thing here is that you get to do a do-over, right? And that's pretty right, rare right. I guess, uh, it, during these midterm yeah. elections. So uh, Bob Mulholland, this Democratic strategist, uh, I believe also a spokesper spokesperson at one point, um, told the LA Times at the time that the Democrats were too complacent and, quote, full of themselves. They let Christy Smith down. Where do you think was the breakdown? What was the chain's weakest link, in your opinion? Oh, gosh. You know, really, Terry, it was a perfect storm of a lot of unfortunate circumstances. Um, we had changed our primary date, most people know. Yeah. I, I think it was all of it. I mean, we had changed our primary date. So we had our primary in March, where most voters were used to having it in June. And I think a lot of our voters thought that because I won the primary so handily, I beat the Democratic field by 30 points, and I beat the Republican field by 10 points, that mm -hmm. I had won. Most people did not realize there was going to be this May special election. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't reengaged for that reason. Then at the same time, we had really had the, the very beginnings of the rapid upswing with COVID and then the mm -hmm. response to it here in the state. So immediately people in this district were finding themselves jobless or sheltering at home and staying safe at home and adapting to that new normal with kids doing school at home and the mom and dad working at home and 
whatever the case might have been, it was just a really difficult and unfortunate time to try to engage voters in that moment. And Democratic voters in particular just, you know, they they sometimes sit out those ones in between. They're very good to us, you know, in presidential Novembers, but in between, it's a little harder to reach them sometimes and get them motivated to vote. So I think for Mm -hmm. all of those reasons, it was a perfect storm that that led to a better Republican response um, when it came Mm -hmm. to the ballot box. But now in November, we've got a completely different dynamic. We've got the presidential, we've got a number of ballot initiatives that people are motivated to get out and vote on. And of course, congressional races and municipal races up and down the state. So I think Mm -hmm. you will see a lot greater voter participation in November. And then, of course, that that mm-hmm. goes to our advantage because we're in a heavily Democratic registration advantage district. Sure. I, you know, it, it, I also think this this speaks a lot to sort of the strategy that you will have to cultivate um, as you approach November. You know, um, you, as you know, you received scrutiny for some comments that you made during a call with supporters in April. Um, you were critiquing the qualifications mm-hmm. of uh, Mr. Garcia, and you said, I texted my team and I'm like, okay, he's got pictures of planes behind him and I've got more constitutional law books. You did apologize later. and you Yeah, well, it. that way, that wasn't, yeah, that was, so there was a, there was a, yeah. a volunteer on the call who made a comment sure. and we were engaging back and forth sort of about the irony of, you know, the Republicans sure. were calling out Amy McGrath, a very, you know, gifted, well-respected mm-hmm. veteran. And, and believe right. me, I respect Mr. Garcia's service. I would never diminish yeah. the service of somebody else, especially coming from a family where service was, um, part of our family history. Yeah. Um, it was just, it was, um, yeah. it was an unfortunate moment. Yeah, I yeah. shouldn't have said it, but it, it was just, a, yeah. it was a, a stark contrast in how <clears throat> we were campaigning. And the sad reality was that the, the same party who would belittle the qualifications of this amazing qualified woman, you know, um, lifting him up at the same time. And, and they both deserve to be lifted up for, you know, their their uh, service to the country. So yeah. it was it was unfortunate how it came out and I regret it. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I want I wanted to ask you though. Uh, sure, sure. I did just want to ask you though about yeah. the strat the strategy in that because you you as I said you did apologize and you cited your admiration for service members given your father's position. Um, so I, right. I what I wanted to, what I wanted to ask you is that there's a, a lot of um, military service members and and veterans who live in that district. Do you think that 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 comment because of the climate that we live in gave your opponents republicans more fodder to sort of label you as this elite out of touch politico i mean i guess the question is how how do you if you believe that that wound persists or that they that they might characterize it as such how do you overcome that what is the strategy oh i don't think so i mean i listen i have part of my service at the state legislative level has been in very strong support of our veterans communities. I have a veterans advisory committee that I convene regularly um, in support of local veterans communities. We've actually branched that out to other parts Mm of the 38th assembly district where there was not that support for veterans that's been led by my team. So I think my work in this area speaks for itself. I mean, my vote, my co-authorship of a bill in support of veteran owned businesses, it certainly, um, you know, is not reflective of how I've advocated on behalf of the veteran community. Got it. You're basically the, so the bottom line is this argument does not reflect the totality of your track record on the issue. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. Got it. So obviously we're in an extremely toxic political environment where things can be twisted and turned and there's this deep fake thing now and, you know, 24 hour 
so news cycle and social media, how do you, I guess, what, what's your pl playbook this, this time around? How will you approach this race differently compared to the, the previous race? Well, I mean, it'll be different in the sense that we have more mo voters that we're going to be motivating to get out um, with a different mm -hmm. turnout model in November. But really, all of the very issues that I have been running on all along are the ones that speak to the moment that we're in right now. Unfortunately, because of this COVID pandemic, the need to really shore up our healthcare system to ensure that everyone has access to a provider, that everyone has healthcare coverage, some form of insurance, uh, so that a family doesn't have to go bankrupt if someone gets sick. We need to be talking about climate change because we know that the new normal with climate change is not only devastating physically to the planet, but will lead to increased challenges like the one we're seeing now with changes in disease patterns and how diseases travel globally. It's all part of the global warming picture. So having a really forward thinking um, climate policy is something that I'm running on. And then because I you know, have spent my lifetime in public education policy and career development, mm -hmm. career training, we know that as a result of this pandemic, economically, we are probably going to be just losing some jobs. There are jobs that might not come back, industries that we might not see come back after this or that will struggle to come back. And so how quickly uh, at the federal level, we can stand up new job training programs to be responsive to that moment, make sure that we're investing in people to give them the opportunity to turn around um, you know, from this unemployment will be significant and important. So we are running on all of that. Sure. We are running on, um, I'm a staunch defender of women's reproductive freedom, and my opponent has already co-sponsored two pieces of legislation which seek to criminalize uh, a woman making reproductive health care choices, um, given her constitutional, the, you know, Supreme Court granted freedom to do that now. So, mm -hmm. um, there, there are some pretty sharp contrasts, and I think it's easy to draw out. Sadly, I do think that, um, my opposition will go as, as dark and as ugly as they did last time and not entirely honest. And we're going to stay on the high road. We're going to talk about the issues that are really impacting people day to day and present a positive vision of where we think this country needs to be going. How much of that vision um, is focused on the president? Because there's some strategists have said that the Democrats should not talk about this, the, the election as a referendum or should not totally concentrate on the president, uh, you know, making this election a referendum because then there's no clear message. So I guess what, what's, um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I agree with that. I think, I think the necessity of a referendum speaks for itself and then it's incumbent on those of us who are running to present, you know, that positive vision to actually have a platform of um, actionable priorities that we're going to go to Washington DC with and plan to lead on. So before we go, because I know you gotta you gotta get back to being uh, a legislator to your job, um, gotta ask you some some quick uh, quick 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 question on the 2020 trail. As you know, a few Californians currently being considered for Joe Biden's running mate, Senator Kamala Harris, and uh, and Representative right. Bass. Um, any any mm -hmm. favorites for you? Well, those are both uh, women who I respect and admire uh, mm -hmm. very, very much. Both have been um, gr great friends, great mentors, wonderful allies. I, at this moment in our country's history, would love to see the vice presidential pick be a woman of color. I think it's important in this moment, and I think either of them would be outstanding choices. Okay, so no, so no endorsement right now. <laughs> <laughs> Is I that, I, that, I appreciate no and respect them both equally. <laughs> no, I you know what I I would be thrilled either one of them and and either one of them would uh, be actually yeah. fabulous in multiple roles in the Biden administration. So 
I, I'd love to see both of them uh, take on significant leadership roles. So as we wrap up, um, you are undoubtedly an outstanding brew. And I think no matter what people's political affiliation is, I think anyone can agree that because of your pedigree and because of your work, you know, you can certainly rest on, on your laurels. You've, you know, accomplished a lot in this, um, in, in this realm to the students who feel like this day never ends and that they are possibly upset about this continuous loop of online learning and the burden of COVID, the, the burden that it poses. How could they at this moment find satisfaction and, and make the most of this sort of turbulent juncture in history? What advice would you give? Well, first of all, I would say persist. I mean, literally, as someone who threw a whole bunch of unfortunate circumstances into that taking six years to complete a bachelor's degree, um, you will get there. You know, and I, I think a lot of, especially when we're young, we get in our head, but I'll be, you know, such and so age, I'll be 25. Okay, well, you can be 25 with a degree or you can be 25 without a degree. So go for the degree and keep keep moving on. Um, if you have the opportunity, I know, you know, I, particularly for me, I wasn't a, a great distance learner. I like the in-classroom environment. It is, it's challenging. It's challenging to stay engaged. It's hard to not have that interaction with your peers and have, um, you know, other outside ac activities and interests. Um, to enjoy or, you know, unfortunately, I know a lot of our students right now are experiencing joblessness because they were in sort of that service sector, you know, with a part-time employment to get through school. So um, apply for benefits if you qualify, if you need them, apply for unemployment assistance, go back to your, um, you know, your financial aid office at school. And if your circumstances have changed, apply for more assistance because you, you need to stick it out, persist and, and get that degree and finish up. And then, you know, on the other end of it, if you were a graduate, you know, this past June, um, if you plan on graduating sometime in the next year, just understand the job market is going to be a little bit more challenging for you. But again, persist, hang in there, take something unconventional that you might not have considered a pathway. You know, the most interesting and successful people I know have changed careers multiple times and they're not shy about that, right? Or, you know, take that gap year, get something that gets you through before you go back to grad school. So, you know, do what you need to do. But um, as I tell my own kids, just keep moving forward. Just keep that forward momentum going and it will serve you well. But reach out for help when you need it to. Also incredibly important. So ultimately persist, persist, persist. Yes, persist, ask for help when you need it. And, um, you know, know that there are better days ahead in so many ways. A big thank you to Assemblywoman Smith. Witness her road to Congress virtually, that is on Twitter, at Christie for CA25. Thank you for joining me. Please rate, review, subscribe, stay healthy, and stay sane. And I'll see you right back here on next week's episode of Find Your Call.